LMFM Podcasts, brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union, where dreaming of warmer climates becomes a reality with a Cartmacross Credit Union holiday loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or cartmacrosscu.ie. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 16th of April, 2019. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The National Broadband Plan was first promised in 2012 but remains elusive. Uh, the cost of the plan has ballooned from an estimated 500 million euro to 1 billion euro to potentially 3 billion euro depending on which estimates you listen to. Seven years have passed and technology has changed. The speeds promised by the plan have increased from 30 megabytes per second to 150 megabytes across the 542,000 premises that are currently without coverage. Companies interested in the contract have fallen off like flies. Now there is just one final bidder left. That is National Broadband Ireland, which is led by Granahan McCourt. The handling of the contract has led to a government minister, Dennis Nocton, resigning his position. And the question now is whether the government deems the project value for money and worthwhile. A review of the project and the final bidder for the tender is underway, but concern mounts as another deadline passes. In February, the Taoiseach promised a decision on the plan would be made before Easter, but broadband is not on the agenda for the government when the Cabinet holds its last meeting before the Easter recess today. Brian Stanley is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on commu- communications and on the line. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, you're concerned that this may be long-fingered once again. Good morning, Mike. Well, it's been long-fingered that, that, that many times now that people are running out of hope, and particularly the 540,000 households and businesses, many of them indeed in, in your own county, County Loud, uh, in rural areas who are waiting for, for broadband so as they can carry out business from home, they can, so as they can carry out business from the farm, so as they, they can run their small businesses in rural areas without having to commute into Dublin unnecessarily. Um, it's a fiasco, Um you know, unfortunately, uh, it started off wrong in 2012. Uh, the government went with the completely privatised model, uh, a very important piece of state infrastructure uh, to service the service the 26 counties. Um, they, they have now become a prisoner of that process. And you know, I just I listened to your introduction there, mm. and you give you give a fairly good rundown, uh, Mike. You know, when you're speaking, I know you move very fast, but you did give a great summation of of where things are at with it. And it has been, you know, one fiasco after another. And the problem is, is that the government are now a prisoner of the process and they're basically a prisoner of one investor. And the taxpayer is ultimately going to wind up being the prisoner because, as you, as you mentioned, it started out at half a billion. And the figures now that are being leaked out over the past four or five months is are in the region of three billion. Mm. And uh, I have asked question after question about this. You know what price range are we talking about here? Like I said, at the end of the day, this is a, this has to be a public service, and a very important part of it is is that every one of your listeners, every one of your listeners is going to pay for this, uh, and that's that's the facts of the situation. And the question then is: Is it value for money? Is this project uh, looking at being long fingered again, or is there the prospect of it being shelved? Well, I asked. 
uh, back last October and many other times when Minister Nocton stood down, it was clear to it's clear to me for over a year that this process is in is in deep trouble. Uh, because you know by the way ministers answer questions in the doll, you know when you're talking to officials outside of the chamber, they pick up hints of what's going on. Uh, obviously they're being coy about it. But you can see that this is in this is in serious trouble. And I asked uh, again last October that we look at a completely different model, that we re-examine what, we, what Sinn Féin proposed in 2012, that this will be rolled out via the ESB network, using the ESB, who are already involved with CSIRO in rolling out broadband. Now, I know that Fianna Fáil have, in the last number of months, to have come to the Sinn Féin position, even though they opposed it at the beginning, but they normally come late to things anyway, but that's, that's beside the point. <laughs> but what we must do here is that what we suggested in mm. 2012, we have an infrastructure... It goes to every home in the state. The telecommunications network doesn't go, Mike, because you notice a lot of houses wherever you're living, rural areas around you. New houses being built now don't tend to have telephone lines going into them, but they do have an ESP cable. So there is a pole or cable going to every house, mm. or almost every house with ESP, except maybe there might be a handful of people in each county who don't have it. So there's the network. The yeah, but there's a, a lot of houses uh, that do have telephone lines going into them and people don't use them. They use their mobile uh, and technology is yes. changing in that uh, a rapid rate. Uh, is it worthwhile moving forward with this project? Whilst it undoubtedly was the thing to do in 2012 and 2019, some seven years later, uh, should we be looking at newer technologies and the idea of well, providing high-speed broadband through 5G or something like that? Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a question mark over that. And I, I'm, not, I'm not telecommunications. I'm not, uh, uh, I wouldn't have an engineering qualification in, in telecommunications. Mm. And like yourself, you know, you have, to take a, you have to take the advice of the people who are supposed to be the experts. The most recent information that we're being told is that, you know, well, 5G and that will, you know, some people are talking it up that you can service uh, tens of thousands of homes without any cables. You know, the advice is, is that that's not really the case. You do need telecommunications companies and experts will tell us and the department will tell us that you do need an infrastructure, you do need a cable infrastructure, which DSB provide. However, what I would say to you is this, is that there's a question mark over what we're being told about uh, the fibre needs to go to every home. And you'll remember Minister Nocton getting up and Minister Rabbit and Minister White. You know, this is the fourth minister, by the way, we're on now. Mm. Four ministers and two governments on this uh, who, have, who have trumpeted that it would be fibre to every home. Uh, what we have picked up, and I have met several of, the, several of the people who are leading up the companies who were involved in the game here in Ireland over the last two years, and I've tried to educate myself about it. What we're being told consistently is, is that uh, you may not need fibre for the last mile. In other words, you come to the end of a small road or laneway, and there's four or five houses up that laneway, fibre to the end of the, the, the Boreen may do, and the, the last mile or the last half mile can be done by radio signal. Uh, because technology has moved on, and you're correct about that. But what we are hearing consistently, even in recent weeks, is that no, you can't do it without having uh, the you know the main fibre infrastructure in place. Uh, it can be brought some distance at the end, maybe you know from the cabinet, uh, what they call from the cabinet or from antenna to to maybe the last number of homes. Mm. Uh, but that does have to be in place, and ESB have it. Is it worth three billion? That's the question. And you see, we don't know what the price is because mm. no minister, I have asked ministers, I don't expect them to name the price because they're supposed to be in a tender and process. And I'll come to that in a minute. Mm. That's, this is another interesting thing for the taxpayer. That if, is it half a billion 
or is it three billion? Mm. If it's three billion, there's question marks over it. Severe question marks over it. Well, it was, um, ha- it was half a billion, wasn't it, for the National Children's Hospital? And now that seems as though it's going to be two billion. Well, and that's and th- and that's part of what's happening here as well. There is government are being coy and they are being careful because of what, the fiasco with the Children's Hospital. The fact that they effectively wrote out a blank check there. But the point is, is when they mentioned half a billion first, it was obvious that that much of a subsidy from the taxpayer was not going to be enough to to carry out this. Um, the problem with it is, is that they haven't been able to give even a range in terms of what the cost will be. And there is some speculation and there is some whispering going on. And I've heard it, you know, that in recent or the last two months or so that they were going to announce it or holding back because they're afraid of announcing the fact that maybe that the cost will be very high and the public will say, Jesus, here we go again, like, uh, after the National Children's Hospital. And that's, they have caught themselves in that kind of a vice. But the other key point about it is this. Um, you know, you had, as you mentioned in your introduction, mm. you had three companies bidding for this. And Dennis Nocton came out in uh, March 2017, uh, just over two years ago now, and announced in the government press centre. And they went over to the press conference to hear this and announced that he was going to allow... Uh, air to cherry pick 300,000 homes and businesses uh, because at that time there was 840,000 homes and businesses waiting. So in other words, what he was doing was that the government was allowing air to pick up 300,000 of the easiest to reach ones that were, that they could do without without having the national broadband plan. Mm. That sounds good, and it's trumpeted at the time by government that yippee, here we are, there's 300,000 people going to get them. And true enough, that is being rolled out by air. They're a commercial company, and that's what they do. But as I pointed out to him that day, the problem with it is, is you've allowed the rich pickings to be taken out of it. And now what you've left is the 540,000 that are going to be the most costly and most difficult to reach. And you can look at the maps from all over the country. Yeah, but what will you do? Go back to the drawing board? Well, the point is is that the the first thing is you shouldn't have allowed that cherry picking to happen because that took took a lot of the incentive out of it for other companies. And hence the reason that ESB Mm. pulled out of it. And Air once they got their 300,000 said, thank you very much. We're, we're not now interested in the whole deal anymore. We're not interested in servicing the 840,000. We have the, we have the handy ones here and the most lucrative ones. We're taking them. Thank you very much. What I would say to you at this point is, is that I asked last October for them to look again at the ESB model, to use the ESB network, to look at a different type of contract because you cannot have a competitive tender. There's one person, uh, David McCourt, the, uh, uh, the Granon and McCourt Consortium, that's that's the only that's the only company left in this, an American company, and they're in the business, they're in the commercial business, and that's fair enough. But the problem is, is that the government have and the taxpayer are now becoming they have now become a prisoner to this, and we know that Dennis Nocton met the, uh, David McCord on numerous occasions, mm. and by all accounts, what it appears to have been happening was was that he, they were trying to keep McCord in the game because he's obviously playing hardball with him because he can play hardball. And Minister Bruton told me no later than about a fortnight ago in the Dáil, when I raised his with him at the at Minister's questions, he said that, oh, you know, we're still involved in a competitive yeah. competitive tender. You cannot have, anybody who's ever gone to a fair or a mart or gone to buy anything, you can't have a competitive tender if you have only one bidder. Well, you have to compete if it's not automatically going to be granted to you. And if uh, that bid comes in at $3 billion, uh, are you saying that Sinn Féin would say, no, thanks very much, we'll go back to the drawing board, and instead of delivering broadband to 
the 500,000 premises uh, from here on out and over the course of the next year or so, that you'd push this project back by at least three years, which I think no. is the estimate. No, no, I didn't say, I didn't say that at the time. What I said was... You said that you would go back to the, the, government, the, to the drawing board and get the ESB to deliver this through the pylon system, which they say would take up to three years to do. That would be the equivalent of going back to the beginning. Well, well, I can say I, there's two, answer, two things I want to say to you in reply to that. Number one is, is that this will not be rolled out in a, in, a, in a year or in two years. This will be a five, six or seven year project. That's the first thing I want to say to you. The second thing is that Sinn Féin never said stop. What, Sinn, what I said at the time was, was that the government were taking a month out to review what was happening. And what I asked for that time back in October last year in November was that as part of that review, as part of that review, that they would look again at the ESB model. They didn't do that. I believe that that opportunity was lost then, right? I don't know what's going on the more than Mike Reid knows at this time. All we can do is speculate and try and get answers out of ministers. But we, what we do know is, is the project, by all accounts, looks like it's in trouble. Mm. And, and all options, all options should be kept open. If this, if this tendering process goes belly up, Mike, right, in that case, then they need to go back to the drawing board. And if, and if it's in serious trouble, what they need to do is they need to talk to the other uh, parties in the Dáil about this. This is a major project. This is of major importance, regardless of who, what party you belong to or who you support. The people in rural areas who, who support Jerry Adams or who supports Melda Munster or who supports Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael TD, they want broadband. Everyone wants broadband, right? And what they need to do is they need to come out and they need to explain exactly what's happening. They can't keep just, uh, you know... Mm. Well, that's that's where we're at today. They said that they would do it before Easter, and it's not going to happen before Easter. Now, the Tonish just said last night uh, that it'll be a matter of weeks instead of a a matter of months, that this will be decided uh, pretty quickly. But uh, what would you interpret a a matter of weeks to mean? Will that be an an announcement after the local elections? We we were told this. We were told this many times last Mm. year. It was imminent. We were told again we'd see it before Christmas. Uh, it didn't come before Christmas. Then we were told it would come in January. And I remember hearing, I remember being told this by ministers. You know, then we were told that it happened before Easter. I, in, in answer to questions I have put to them in the past, there have been over 80 civil servants from the department and consultants working on behalf of the department uh, doing this project uh, in terms of the tender end of it, right? Dealing with the tender process alone. This has gone on for a couple of years. This is, I mean, can you imagine the situation? Over 80 people from the department side alone. And what it is, is, is if you think about it, is that you're trying to do this with a private company mm. with, no, with no competitive element to it because uh, there's only one company bidding. The taxpayer is going to pick up a subsidy. Uh, the technology may not be up to scratch now because time has moved on. So, so there's, all the, there's the whole stuff around the, uh, the technology of it. There's the logistics. And there's the finance. And I believe on all three counts that there's question marks right across those three areas. And the government, what the government should do today, what Minister Bruton should do today, is meet with the spokespersons from the other parties or the party leaders uh, and give us some kind of an explanation as to what is going on here. Well, that's not going to happen. And I think people will be somewhat uh, dissatisfied uh, to be asked to vote uh, for different uh, political parties on uh, the 24th of May without knowing if there's a a plan, what that plan is, and what's involved in delivering that plan. Well, if they had to listen to what we told them, what we suggested in 2012, 
uh, what Sinn Féin proposed, we wouldn't be here now because other countries have used that model. And DSP is actually using, FIRO is actually using part of their infrastructure to roll out broadband in the game that they're involved in with FIRO. So, you know, this is a can-do. It's just that they weren't, they weren't prepared to look at it. They were tied ideologically to the totally privatised model of the uh, of rolling it out. And they've, they've been caught in a trap with it now and they've become a prisoner of it. Mm. But what they must do, at the very least, what we must do is find out what in the name of God is going on. Why, where is this at? If there's 80, over 80 people working on this on behalf of the department for the last couple of years, what's the problem with it? What has it held up? Is it cost? Is it logistics? Is it that the technology is now being questioned? Uh, they're the kind of answers that we need to hear. And all options need to be kept open. But this has to be done and has to be done soon. Okay, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Brian Stanley is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on communications and a TD for Lee Shoffley. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Association of uh, Garda Sergeants and Inspectors meet uh, for the second day in County Cavan uh, today. Sergeant Vincent Jackson, who's Crime Prevention Officer with uh, the Louth Garda Division and the AGSI Branch Secretary for Louth, joins us from there this morning. Good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Your conference is always uh, a very busy affair and uh, an opportunity for your members uh, to ask questions of the Minister and the Commissioner and to bring both to account and to highlight many of uh, the concerns that you have. Uh, but uh, things have uh, turned on their heads somewhat uh, this time around and uh, the Minister concerned about the Association. Indeed, a lot of people concerned about the Association, which is in itself in the spotlight today. Well, there's been a, we are our association has issued a small uh, statement about that. And it is a very small matter, Mike, to be perfectly honest. Uh, the vast majority of our members representing our different gathered divisions are here. The minister came yesterday and he addressed our conference. We have some very important issues facing the country. Mm. Antoinette Cunningham is in there, the uh, Deputy General Secretary, and Paul Wallace, the Vice President, is in there. Why are they not there, do you think? Uh, you've, you've picked out three individuals, Mike, but the, the rest of the membership are here representing their members. This is a big period of change for Angarda Shikana. It's a very important period of change. As you know, we have uh, extra Garda staff coming into the organisation, civilian, civilian staff coming in. Um, we have our new commissioner. He's implementing change in Angarda Shikana. It's very important that we are here to uh, to discuss and uh, the debate the around all of that and to ensure that the service we deliver and provide is the best for the country going forward. It's mm. an exciting time. It's a divided association over the alleged behaviour of one of your senior members. And it's that behaviour that has led to Antoinette Cunningham and Paul Wallace deciding not to be there. And uh, this allegation has undoubtedly cast a cloud over proceedings in uh, uh, County Cavan this morning. No, it hasn't ca- ca- cast a cloud at all. The, the, all the motions at conference have been debated very vigorously and very uh, professionally, and uh, the conference is running along smoothly. Um, we, we have a lot of important issues, like I said, to facing the association and facing the country, and the service delivery that we provide is very, very important. Mike, we are middle management. We mm-hmm. represent guard sergeants and inspectors, and, and it's important that we are part of that program for change, and change has been sought by the public, and the public have a right to see that the Garda Shikana provide the best service that we possibly can. But it is a very serious allegation, isn't it, that one of your members has acted illegally? Um, the, 
there's alle- there's allegations there. We mm. issued a statement yesterday about those, those um, allegations, and they 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 were there's a process. by double jobbing as oh. a, a security consultant at Coolmore Stud. It's a, a very specific allegation, and has led to two senior members of the association not attending. It's a, a, a very questionable situation that the association finds itself in today. Is it not? Mike, we issued a statement about that yesterday. The press are fully aware. We've kept we've kept everybody fully aware of mm. what is what is going on in the association. But as I said, the association is getting on with its business of representing the guard sergeants and inspectors, and middle management. There are a couple of absentees. It's regrettable that they didn't come here to conference and debate the issues, which are very very important. It's very regrettable that they're not here. This is the forum for debate. This is the forum for discussion. This is where we. Um, but it's believed that they're not there because of how the association is handled. Handling this allegation uh, is that correct? Uh, they have their own reasons. I haven't actually spoken to any of those people, and, and I know but some. You've heard, you've heard those people. reports, have you not, Sergeant? I've heard that. Oh, I've heard that they, they, they are here. I was very surprised that they're not here. This is where they should be to debate the issues which are important to the association. Hmm. But they're not because of the way the association is handling this particular allegation. Is that correct? The association, uh, the association are dealing with association business. There's a way of dealing with complaints. There's a separate format for dealing with complaints, and the association uh, are, are dealing with what mm. is presented before them, the most for conference in as professional way as they possibly can, and the conference is, is going very, very well, not Mike. Okay, uh, but you know, I mean, I'm sure you'll recognise uh, how significant it is when the minister says we need you to work together because we need an association that we can trust and put trust in. Uh, and I agree with what the minister said. We need we need the association to work together. And that's why all the members that represent the members of our association. It is a privilege, Mike, to represent your membership. I am the branch secretary for Loud. It's a privilege to represent my members here, Loud. At this conference, all our members should be here representing the membership, the entire membership. This is where we discuss the issues. This is where we trash it out. There are motions which we agreed, motions which are not, which do not succeed, and that's a natural course of the, of the, debate, the democratic debate. And this is where we would, would have it at conference. It's the first time your members will be addressed by Drew Harris, the uh, new yes. commissioner. Uh, what are you expecting to hear from the commissioner? Well, the commissioner is presiding over a period of change, and he has got a budget to implement the change. There's a lot of civilization coming into the Garda Shikana. Uh, there will be change ahead. He, he's bringing a fresh, fresh approach, fresh ideas, and we can bring forward our our opinions, our ideas. You know, we have um, past experience in managing the service for quite a long time. He has past experience for an external police force. He's, he's our commissioner now, and he's coming here to conference. It's very good to see and uh, we look forward to his contributions. Okay, uh, are you hoping to hear anything specifically from him? Uh, because there's a, a lot of issues uh, that the association seems to be bringing forward I- itself. Yeah, obviously we're looking we're looking for implementation in in, in new technology, uh, in in resources, naturally in manpower, in accommodation. These are issues we always uh, keep uh, on the forefront, and uh, we hope that he can deliver some program uh, for change. He has a budget allocated to him, and we're, we're hoping that he can spell out today what his plans are. The role of Gardaí in evictions uh, is an issue that has been raised by the AGSI. What what kind of guidance are you hoping to hear from the Commissioner in relation to that? I'd have, Mike, on that, I would have to wait to hear from the Commissioner, and I can't preempt what he's going to say. I can only wait and hear what he has to say about that, that topic. Will you hope uh, that the uh, Commissioner will make some statement on uh, the introduction of new legislation with reports 
of Gardaí not receiving training in terms of the changes in the domestic violence legislation or the Road Traffic Amendment Act, known as the Clancy Law. Yeah, Mike, you're, you're correct. We expect that he will make some comment in that area, certainly. And uh, obviously the, the, the legislation legislations coming down the line are from the Minister about the, the training. Obviously, it's, uh, the Commissioner's rebate, and we expect to hear some comments about that. Uh, is there the resource in place to provide that training? Yes, I, I think it is. And um, uh, hopefully that we can deliver that programme uh, more um, more in line when legislation comes out. That's that's what we would be looking for, not to have delays in, in, in uh, training our personnel. The uh, Minister yesterday speaking uh, about a, a much bolstered force, uh, particularly at middle management level. Yes, he did. Yes, he commented on, on, on the numbers he hopes to get up, including uh, Garda staff, um, by 2021. So we look forward to that change. And obviously, with extra resources, Mike, as you very well know, we would need accommodation to go with the growing uh, staff members and the resources that we would need and that was uh, that would be part of the capital building programme. Uh, there's concern about promotion or members not being promoted because of allegations that have been made against them. Can you uh, give us more information on that please? No Mike, I cannot give you any more comment on that particular matter. Um, that would not be in my remit. Okay, but there is concern within your association. This is one of the issues that's going to be discussed, is it not, that uh, when allegations are are made against an officer, promotions and such uh, uh, aspects uh, are affected uh, and uh, prevented. Yeah, well, we would hope that when an allegation is made that the members, our members, are entitled to due process, and uh, that it would be done. Not, you know, it would be delayed. It would be done as expeditiously as possible. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed Thank you much, for joining us uh, this morning. From County Cavan, that's uh, Sergeant Vincent Jackson, who's uh, the Crime Prevention Officer in County Loud and the AGSI Branch Secretary uh, for Loud uh, for the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors. Uh, now, as you know, uh, there's been uh, an in- Intensive effort to put out a fire and apparently the fire at Notre Dame Cathedral has been fully extinguished at this stage. Uh, the President Emmanuel Macron has vowed to rebuild the cathedral and this has caused shockwaves to be felt across the world. Dr Laura O'Brien is originally from Navan. Uh, she's a senior lecturer in European history in Northumbria University in Newcastle and previously taught at Pantheon Sorbonne University in Paris and is on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us uh, this morning, Laura. I'm sure uh, you were as shocked as anybody else, if not more so, uh, when you heard the news last night. Hi, Michael. Yeah, I mean, I think we were, people of the world over were just shocked by what was happening, but I, I yeah, it was, my, my husband contacted me and said there's a fire and it doesn't look good. Um, and I think when we when I saw the photos then, I saw the live footage, I think that's one of the advantages and disadvantages of living in a, an age where people can live stream everything instantly is that you can see immediately how bad something is. Um, and I think there was, for much of last night and yesterday evening, I think um, it didn't look good for this building. So I think to wake up this morning to, to check the, the latest photographs and to see the sun coming up in Paris and the building is still there, um, broadly in the same shape as she was, but, you know, yesterday afternoon is, is very reassuring. I think it's a testament to the work that the Parisian Fire Service did. Is it possible to quantify the damage, though? 
I think it's very, very hard. Now, I know um, the latest that I'm aware of is that there will be essentially an inventory done once the building is made safe and secure. Um, we know that they evacuated most of what the Parisian Archdiocese referred to as the, the artworks and the, the most important objects in the cathedral. So things like the, the relic of the crown of thorns, the tunic of Louis IX, all these kinds of very important devotional objects in the cathedral were taken out last night very quickly. Um, the latest is that there will be people going in to check what's there and what's not there. Now, there are photos circulating from the Parisian Fire Service of the interior of the cathedral last night. And what's amazing is that the altar seems to be intact. And incredibly, that there are candles around the altar that haven't melted. They're just they're still intact. So it looks like the damage is bad in the middle where the spire collapsed. It looks like some of the, the rose windows from the 12th, 13th century may have survived, which is incredible. Um, but I think it will be very difficult to know exactly what's gone and what's, what needs to be restored um, until they do a full survey of the building. Right. Uh, one of uh, the concerns, uh, I think, last night was for the windows, uh, mm-hmm. the stained glass windows, uh, which uh, would be incredibly valuable in themselves, uh, and the heat of the fire plus uh, the water then touching the windows and how that might impact on them. Yeah, I, I think the, there was real concern once the fire started to move away from the sort of central spire and out towards the, um, across the transept and starting to, to touch where the, where the rose windows were. Um, this, the latest story from French media is that the, the most of the glass damage has been done to 19th century replacement glass rather than to the, to the original medieval glass. And obviously, as you say, the, it's not just the fire, it's also the pressure of the water, the, the constant sort of battering of the windows with water to try to save this, to stop the fire. So I don't think we'll know until some specialists get up and actually look at the windows and see what's there. Um, but I think people are much very, very relieved because last night really did look like that medieval glass would not make it out. Um, we know that two-thirds of the roof is definitely gone, so that mm. means that all those thousands of beams which dated back to the, were there since the 12th, 13th century, um, they are all, you know, they are two-thirds gone. But um, when they announced that the, the two towers had been secured, I think that was a real moment of reassurance because there was some concern that if one of the bells fell, it would bring down the entire front of the, of the cathedral. So um, I think, you know, really thanks to the work of the Prisian fire service, but also thanks to the architectural ingenuity of, you know, medieval skilled French architects and craftsmen, um, that building has survived in in a way that I think last night people really didn't think it would. Mm. And uh, as best as it is possible to understand it uh, this morning, because uh, the full extent of the fire may not be known for some time, I take it. No, I mean, I think one of the things, you know, with, with fighting a fire on this scale is that you... You have to obviously you have fire damage, but you also have the the damage done by the water that is being used mm. to fight the fire. And I think the the early photos that we're seeing of the interior of the cathedral, you can see that the floor is completely sort of, you know, is, is covered in a, in a layer of of water. Mm. Um, I think what mm. I would say that that seems positive, and I think you know people seem to think this is quite a, a good sign, is that apart from the middle, the transept of the cathedral where the, the spire came through and collapsed onto the floor, now that has taken out the stone roof. That stone roof still looks okay, but as we say, it will need, I think, months of, of people just checking to see if it's okay. The good thing about Notre Dame, not that this is good, I mean, in any way, shape or form, but the good thing about Notre Dame is that because it is such an important building, um, in, we have a really detailed record of, of what it looks like and how it's built. So um, I know that there, is, there was a, a, an American art historian who, who died recently who 
um, did a 3D scan of the entire cathedral. Um, so thanks to that kind of research and that kind of work, um, the architects and restoration teams who will go in, as, as, as Emmanuel Macron has said, that the cathedral will be rebuilt, um, they can now work from those kind of resources to know where everything goes, where, you know, how we should rebuild anything that is um, gone beyond uh, restor- restoration. Okay, well, we'll uh, be watching it closely, I'm sure. Look, thank you for taking the time to speak to us uh, this morning, much appreciated. Dr. Laura O'Brien, who is originally from Navin, is a senior lecturer in European history at uh, Northumbria University in Newcastle. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Department of Defence has made savings of almost €140 million over the course of uh, the last five years and since 2014 has returned €92 million to the Exchequer. Impressive, you may think, uh, but not all would agree. Jack Chambers, Fianna Fáil Defence Spokesperson, TD for Dublin West, is on the line. Good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, You want to know why this money has not been passed on to serving members of the Defence Forces? That's right, Michael, and uh, good morning. Um, Absolutely, like we have a a saving of £140 which has gone uh, unspent, unspent over the last five years. That's the gross saving. Uh, and 90 million was returned to the central exchequer. Um, but I think it's against the backdrop of members of the defence forces who are leaving en masse um, because of issues with morale, pay, and conditions. We have a recruitment and retention crisis. And it's, you know, the Minister for Defence in his own silo, Paul Kyo, uh, the silent lamb at the cabinet table, whilst all the other ministers are penny pinching and grabbing. If you look at the health budget, it's 17 billion. It runs a deficit every year. It needs an additional amount every year. But we've members of our defence forces that are leaving en masse because they can't survive in our defence forces. They're the worst paid in the public service, uh, and they're uh, and they're they're looking at a minister who's returning tens of millions uh, back to the central exchequer, and it, it just shows a gross dysfunction uh, and a mismanagement um, of defence policy in this country. Uh, and I think people have had enough. But how could he increase pay like that when money uh, becomes available or unspent more to the point? Well, he absolutely can, because, for example, he diverted money into the army pensions. He would have diverted money into equipment. Um, there's flexibility mm. around allowances. It just, it's it's his, his inability to actually take on the mandarins in his own department who are rewarded for running uh, a surplus and get promotions as a result of that. We have a huge dysfunction where the Department of Defence is running the show here. But a minister who's who's immune and out of touch with the core issue that we have, like members of Defence Forces are leaving en masse. We had nearly 3,000 who left in the last three years, which is 30% of the overall strength. Um, so that, that we're actually, the exodus means mm. the numbers are unsustainable. We have a white paper target of 9,500. That's meant to be the established strength. But when you look at the uh, the numbers, were, despite recruiting every year, our numbers continue to fall, and they're falling okay. because it's they're the worst paid. They're, thousand, they're, they're, they're in they're in absolute poverty, mm. uh, and they can't put food on the table. It's not a sustainable wage for people uh, that want to raise a family. So, um, my point here is that we are we are running they're running a surplus, um, but instead of uh, using that and diverting it mm. into an enhancement of allowances, which would actually help those who have difficulties with paying conditions. We're effectively allowing other departments who can't run a surplus any year 
to take money from the Department of Defence. And that, in effect, is what is happening. But, but, but you've explained why there is the surplus uh, in what you've just said, to some degree at least, uh, in that instead of having 9,500 members of the forces, uh, there's 8,500 members of uh, the Defence Forces. Uh, and uh, the savings on the 1,000 missing members is part of this overall figure, is it not? And, and that's the issue. So what, we're ha- what we have here is an inability to recruit our way out of this crisis. Uh, and it's because we've got no retention policy. Uh, one of the key issues around retention, obviously, there's morale. Uh, there's, you know, there's an element of contagion across the Air Corps, the Naval Service and the Army where uh, we have half-baked units that can't actually deliver. So what we need is a retention uh, policy. And one of the issues around that is around flexibility of allowances uh, so that we can enhance the numbers and, and, and keep people to stay. For example, uh, Taoiseach and the Dáil in the last couple of weeks mentioned that they have this great new re-entry policy. And when I actually followed up with a parliamentary question to ask, well, how many have re-entered the Defence Forces based on his rhetoric around that? And the response from the Department of Defence that they have had, um, they've had single-digit expressions of interest uh, and you know, so when you when you actually tear away the rhetoric around what they say they're doing versus the reality is we have lots leaving, we have very few who want to return uh, and we've got no retention policy. So that means you need to address the core issue. Which is what, pay? Pay is a huge mm. issue. Uh, and, that, and, and these are public servants, so their pay is they're, set uh, through the public the moment, service pay Well, the agreement. other thing is the government, the government has delayed the work of the Public Pay Commission and it tore away a lot of the recommendations that military management made. Military management made serious recommendations because they get the fact there's a, there's a systemic problem here around the sustainability of our defence force unless we do something about it. But the Department of Defence tore away all the recommendations. The Minister for Defence said last year that he would have recommendations from the Public Pay Commission last year. We still haven't seen the Public Pay Commission report. Uh, so we've had a delay, we've had, uh, and again, kicking the can down the road. Um, but while all that is happening, Rome is burning. And we also have the Minister for Defence, you know, making an international plea in mm. New York and in the United Nations about, you know, the great UN peacekeeping that our defence forces do. But actually, if you read the comments from Vice Admiral, uh, the Chief of Staff, Mark Mellis, he said they're struggling to actually fill positions on uh, on the on the missions abroad now because they can't uh, they, they can't actually fill a lot of the places within uh, within different uh, units across our, our our UN mandated missions. So it's affecting all our work. It is our Air Corps can't uh, continue the a lot of the service level agreements yeah. it has. There's contagion there. There's contagion. Like you know, we have the Minister for Defence speaking about you know the the you know praising them abroad, but actually not dealing with the issues at home, and that's affecting our ability to conduct UN-mandated missions. But the issues but are need... dealt with, are they not? Uh, whether they're dealt with satisfactorily or not is another day's well, work. Uh, but are, are you suggesting they're... that remuneration should continue uh, to be uh, aligned to the public service pay agreements or not? I'm saying that the public pay... There's flexibility with the Defence Forces around allowances. That's always been the case. And the Public Pay Commission is conducting an examination uh, of pay and of allowances, and there needs to be an enhancement of that. Otherwise, we won't have a sustainable uh, numbers in our defence forces, okay. uh, and that's why we have a public pay commission to do that. But when the government butchers the recommendations from military management 
uh, and when it undermines the integrity of what they're saying about the crisis we have here, uh, then it's it, it means we have to question the process in itself. Okay. Uh, and unfortunately, the Department of Defence in Ireland has reviewed defence policy continuously over many years, dislocated families from their, uh, you know, from their jobs, uh, and it's had a huge effect. And you'd see that in Loud and Mead and the impact of okay. uh, well, mem- defence family we, broader we, we, there. We, we, we leave it on that question for the moment uh, because we've run out of time. But thank you indeed for your time and for joining us uh, Thanks, this morning. Michael. Jack Chambers is a Fianna Fáil TD for Dublin West and his party spokesperson on defence. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages uh, that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Morning, Michael. Um, It's been another busy morning on the phones for myself and Ross, so we have lots of comments to get through and a lot of reaction to your opening piece um, on the National Broadband Plan with Brian Stanley. Um, A lot of reaction, a lot of people are finding it very difficult to believe that we're ever going to see internet connection being Mm. rolled out across the country. Uh, Dan was on to say that very fact. He said he finds it hard to believe it'll ever be fully finished. It's been stopping and starting since the project was announced and he wouldn't be surprised if the project went completely belly up in the end. People were promised a state-of-the-art service but it's looking more and more like we've been sold a dud. Okay, well, we don't know. We uh, know that we know nothing and yeah. will know nothing yeah, within the promised time frame. We were told that a review would have been completed and uh, an announcement made before Easter. That will not now happen until after the Easter recess. Um, Anne was on the phone on the same subject and she was very frustrated when I was chatting to her. She's saying that she has a pain in her face listening to promises from government about the delivery of the broadband plan. We've been given several promised dates. None of them have been met. She says at this stage she believes people in Ireland will be drying flat driving flying cars before they have good quality internet connection in their homes mm, maybe so I'd love a flying car <laughs> well, it'd be great crack yep. it'd be okay. great crack yep. um, Jimmy mm. says that the national broadband plan needs to be called out as the lame duck it is it'll never be fully finished it's been put on the long finger so many times why don't government just pull the plug on it and stop wasting their time and the public's money well I'm sure there'll be a lot of people who would hope that Jimmy is wrong and that uh, there will be a credible plan put forward in the coming weeks absolutely mm. and then um we also had a lot of reaction to your um, chat with uh, Dr Laura O'Brien as well in relation to Notre Dame. Mary was saying it was heartbreaking to watch the coverage on the telly last night. It's such a beautiful building full of historical and spiritual significance for people all over the world and to see it destroyed like that was horrible. She said she hopes that uh, the President of France lives up to his promise to rebuild the cathedral for the people. Yeah, well, I, I think that's uh, the way it looks uh, and uh, not as bad as it, it might have been. Some sense of relief as we heard uh, earlier you're on in the programme today as well. Absolutely and Kira on the same subject was saying um, it was awful to see the damage done yesterday she's visited um, the cathedral a few years ago and she thought it was one of the most beautiful buildings she'd ever seen um, she hopes they're able to restore it as soon as possible to its glory and she was delighted to see that nobody was hurt in such a huge blaze mm. um, we had John on as well in the same subject he said it reminded him of watching the fire in the mill in Drogheda last month just mm. seeing another historical building going and he wonders will we see Notre Dame restored and reopened before they even decide what to do with the ruins of the mill in Drogheda. <laughs> it's an interesting point. Uh, we'll uh, go to the phones now, though, because uh, there has been a, a number of arrests in uh, the Drogheda area, as you've been hearing in relation uh, to that shooting that took place in the M1 retail park. Richie Culhan is a Fine Gael councillor and a former Garda detective uh, and joins us now. Good morning to you, Richie, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I suppose uh, there's uh, little that can be said about the arrests except that Gardaí continue to work on what is an ongoing feud in the town. 
Uh, good morning, Michael. Good morning to your listeners. Um, yeah, uh, it's it's uh, gratifying, I suppose, to know and note that uh, four people have been arrested. And it probably shows the extent of the investigation and how quickly it's actually moving. Because, I mean, in an, at any murder investigation, you're looking at uh, several months before arrests are made and charges are brought, or people are brought before the courts. But this uh, uh, attempted murder happened on the 26th of February. I've been led to believe by uh, members of the force and, uh, that, uh, that no expense has been spared in trying to bring to book, I suppose, the main protagonists in this uh, in this investigation and in this feud. Um, and it's vitally important. Uh, and it's been treated very, very seriously by members of the force who really want to bring this feud uh, to an end. And the only way that that's going to happen is by bringing the main players to book and to bring them before the courts and get them out of circulation. And this, I suppose, is the start of it. You have four people that are, have been arrested. Um, they were arrested yesterday morning, I think at 7 a.m., and they have been further extended, I'm led to believe, by Chief Superintendent in, in the Loud Division, Christy Mangan. Um, they've been further extended for a further 24 hours, which shows that there is obviously... Uh, in order for them to extend those people, there is obviously good grounds for extending them and they have um, evidence uh, relating to the four. Right. There's uh, reports uh, this morning as well in one of uh, the papers uh, about a recorded phone call uh, that people have been listening to on uh, the internet uh, and it's said to be a conversation between members of the gangs involved in this feud and has been taken as an indication that this is a dispute that is far from over and is on the brink of boiling over. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I read the report um, in the Star newspaper in relation to it and um, I, I, I got access to uh, to this video that was uh, that has gone viral now, almost kind of thing of, of um, a discussion between uh, two of Two, two of the uh, individuals involved in the feud, and um, it's it's chilling to say the least um, to listen to the conversation. And I suppose it's indicative of of how these feuds uh, are continued. And you know, it's, it's indicative of how personal and deep rooted the the, uh, the the feud is. Uh, so I mean, it's all the more reason if you if you see that and if you see that, if you've seen that uh, particular conversation on social media between. As I said, two of the main players, well, two of the players, um, you know, it gives you a, a serious indication as to how, as I said, how personal this is. And it's 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 all the more, uh, it's, it's so important that, uh, you know, that Gardaí bring this feud to an end because um, it's certainly, if you look, if you look at that, that video and that uh, conversation that's been had, yeah. it's far from over in the minds of the individuals who are involved. How concerned are you? Well, I'm very concerned. I mean, it's uh, concerned about all crime, um, you know, certainly in, in the Drogheda area and indeed the Greater Louth area. Uh, I, mean, I mean, there's all sorts of, of taunting, uh, as Nicola Donnelly describes it in her report uh, about silver bullets. And if you're going for a walk, uh, we can uh, have a, a bit of a chat and all that sort of innuendo, if you like. Uh, but there's also some reference to somebody getting out, whatever that means. Uh, but I, I think we can uh, assume what it means. Is uh, there reason to be concerned by that statement? Well, of course there is, and this isn't the first time that this individual has been mentioned, uh, you know, uh, by these people. Um, there is one individual who is due to be released shortly, and um, uh, 
um, he would be a huge target of you know just not just the uh, national drugs unit but um, of, of guard the guard the force throughout the country and he's a very important player on the Dublin scene and um, I'm led to believe that uh, he has uh, stepped on the toes of uh, very serious criminals in uh, in Mountjoy while he was being incarcerated there and while he is there and that uh, I've been reliably informed that. Um, you know that he is basically um, he's a target for the these very serious criminals. Now he is associated with a number of the players in the Drogheda feud, and um, it's very very worrying to think that um, you know he's going to get involved when he gets out of prison, which will only just prolong this particular feud. But I'm sure you know Gareth are quite aware of that and will be taking the necessary steps to ensure that he's not involved in. Mm. Uh, prolonging this particular feud in Drogheda. Uh, and how well prepared are Gardaí, do you think, uh, for this thing to blow up uh, again? Because uh, there has been uh, complaints and criticism in the past uh, that uh, it's kind of a, a firefighting exercise uh, that Gardaí respond after something happens. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I would have been one of the greatest critics of, of that, um, you, know, uh, you know, when this feud kicked off first. Uh, then we, you know, the, the the force received a number of, uh, you know, supports from headquarters, i.e. manpower right. and uh, emergency response units and armed response units and whatnot. Now, I've spoken to um, a number of Gardaí in Malay who were very close to this investigation. They, they have assured me that, you know, there is actually no expense being spared in uh, trying to bring this feud to, uh, to an end and indeed trying to bring... Uh, bring these people before the courts, and I, you know, I'm I'm satisfied with that. And I suppose again, the the arrests which took place yesterday morning of the four who are still in custody and will remain in custody for at least another 24 hours is indicative of the the fact that they are progressing this investigation uh, quite quickly. And I would hope, but again, you know, I mean, it's and I yeah. and I always emphasize this, Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the, it's the public who are so important in any investigation relating to this, because the public are the eyes and ears. The Gardaí can only, only be in in one place at, at a time. They can't be everywhere. There are people, you know, who have information in relation to this feud and you know things that may happen or things that have happened, uh, and it's important for the ordinary decent people to give the Gardaí assistance in relation to this investigation because. You know, unfortunately, it's a, it's a matter of time, and I've, I've said this before. When you know some innocent bystanders are going to get caught up in a in in, in this uh, in this feud, and hopefully, um, or hopefully not, uh, you know, that uh, this won't happen. But there is that chance. So, I mean, it's important for the public to come forward with any information in relation to the activities of these of the individuals involved. And there are people out there probably listening to your show this morning that have that information yeah. and have the power to. Um, bring this feud to an end um, by, by taking these people, by allowing the Gardaí and giving them the information to take these people before the courts. Okay, thanks for that and for joining us this morning, Richie. Richie Culhan is a Fine Gael councillor in Louth and a former Garda detective. Now let's go back to some more of uh, the comments uh, just briefly if we can please, Maggie. Yeah, sure, mm-hmm. no problem. Um, we had a couple of comments as well relating to your conversation with Jack Chambers on the issue of uh, payment for Defence Force members and um, Anne wants to know why we aren't paying our soldiers enough money they risk their lives in peace, peace, 
peacekeeping missions all over the country why can't we show them some respect by paying them a reasonable wage all over the world I hope oh, well, what did I say? all over the country yeah, yeah I knew what I meant you knew what I meant which is more important mm-hmm. um, Phil uh, wants to know or he basically is asking the question who gets paid a fortune in this country it's the bankers developments landlords and politicians all the people we could do without he says who gets paid tuppence in this country nurses teachers cleaners and soldiers the people we need how does this make any sense well I don't know it probably makes sense to the bankers the developers and the politicians and trying to Tell them that. That's it. And I'll finish up with this one. Um, Benny is a retired soldier living in Drogheda. Um, He said he left the army in 2001 and his pension hasn't been increased since. He's absolutely disgusted uh, to hear Jack Chambers talking this morning about the vast amount of money being sent back to the Exchequer. He says the audacity of the Minister sending that money back when it could be used to top up pay for um, people who, you know, past and present who've worked in the forces. And he said he's absolutely livid by it. Okay. well, look, thanks uh, for that. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch. Thanks, Maggie, for that matter. like to add to what's been said, as Maggie said, Ross is with us this week. Maggie is also taking calls, and our telephone number is 185715958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, in just over two hours' time, all focus will be on Leinster House and uh, the next meeting of uh, the Oireachtas Sport Committee. Today, the committee will hear from the Minister Shane Ross and indeed from Sport Ireland. It follows the announcement of uh, the FAI last night that John Delaney has offered to, to step aside voluntarily from his role as FAI Executive Vice President and two members of the board have also decided to, to stand down, Michael Cody and Eddie Murray. Uh, let's uh, talk with Mark Ty, who's uh, the journalist who jo- broke uh, the story about uh, the 100,000 bridging loan that John Delaney gave to the FAI in the Sunday Times. Good morning to you, Mark Ty, and thanks for joining us uh, this morning. What Hi, you, yeah, how are you? What, what are you expecting uh, from uh, the Oireachtas Committee today? Um, I think they'll be asking um, Sport Ireland particularly um, why they haven't gone in and started an audit themselves. I, I think there's a concern among TDs I've spoken to that you know there's a too much of a softly softly approach from Sport Ireland. Uh, although they have suspended funding, what they're saying is that they'll consider an audit or they'll do an audit, but they want to see what's in the internal FAI uh, reports. But you know, there's been no clarity on that front in terms of what even the, the terms of reference are and, and, you know, why are there two different accountancy firms, um, Grant Thornton and Mazar, um, recruited by the FAI, obviously at, a, at an ongoing cost. The Football Association, which is clearly a cash-strapped organisation, you know, um, that, and, and it's had its difficulties yeah. and had to be bailed out by its uh, chief executive in 2017. So I think that will be an area where um, Kieran Mulvey and John Tracy, the, the leaders of Sport Ireland, will, will, will face the most questioning, you know, why aren't you in there now and, and, and seeking answers to mm. the questions we all want to know. And what do you think the answer to that is? Is it that it has been a work in progress uh, that they were left in the dark, as we heard last time round, when they were in front of the committee to a, a large degree, that they had a lot of questions, that they had put those questions to the FAI and that they weren't satisfied with the answers? And it would appear to some extent uh, that what they were learning was from reading the Sunday Times. Yeah, there, there's an element to that, yeah, and that they're, you know, they're asking questions, what Ireland are, and they're only finding out answers, you know, they find out so some answers last week, you know, at the when the FAI were for the Oireachtas. I think there's a concern, obviously, you know, under uh, FISA statutes, um, you can't have government interference in um, football associations, or you can actually have your your team banned from competitions. Um, so maybe I think 
Sport Ireland want to afford due process to the FAI. Although clearly, you know, you can see from the body language and the and the words used by John Tracy that they don't have any confidence in the FAI board, um, and and that there's complete frustration at the inability of the FAI to answer very basic questions about a number of matters. Um, I think they'll obviously be asked about the, the the curious situation we're in now, where John Delaney is in a kind of a limbo uh, situation where he's he's got one foot out the door um, and. You know, two, two of the most senior members of the board resigned yesterday. Um, Eddie Murray and um, Michael Cody, Cody mm-hmm. who are the, uh, the also the people who would have been responsible for for signing off and John Delaney's expenses um, as as per the the FAI's rules. Mm. Uh, that was uh, your follow-up story to the 100,000 bridging loan and uh, some eyebrows were raised uh, in particular at how cash withdrawals were being made. Yeah, so our investigation established that in a six-month period um, at the end of 2016 that John Delaney had uh, racked up about €40,000 in credit card charges on its FAI uh, credit card. Um, of course, a lot of that um, it, you would be expected as a person who travels a lot. There was over seven thousand euro in, um, ho- in um, flights, sorry, but also there were some huge um, bills from hotels. Uh, there was a four and a half thousand euro Ritz Carlton uh, bill from Dubai, uh, but also we found a curious um, number of transactions where cash was withdrawn, or there was num- numerous cash withdrawals on the same day. And over that six month period, that amassed to over six thousand euro. We asked the FAI, you know, is this a policy? you have that you permit um, executives to withdraw cash for spending on whatever uh, and is that permitted and do you require receipts um, to to be submitted subsequently to that to just check you know what the spending was on and we got a one-line response from the FAO on Friday saying no comment. Mm. Uh, which is somewhat typical of uh, the position taken by the FAI and John Delaney last week uh, at uh, the Sport Committee uh, when he made his statement and refused to take questions. Uh, he seems uh, to have gone on off into the sunset, uh, at least uh, for some period of time, uh, and I'm sure we won't be hearing much for him, from him until uh, the reviews have been completed. Yeah, in, in a football sense, they, they parked the bus last week, um, refused to engage in, in most of the questions, but both John Laney and even the, the, the FAI board members and you know those that were there. You know, we had um, a, a young new fi- finance director who'd only been two weeks in the job. We had Eddie Murray, a 79-year-old honorary treasurer who's been there for 15 years and who didn't know how many bank accounts they had. Mm. And you know, he subsequently has, has, has resigned as of yesterday. Um, so, But this is something, I suppose, as a journalist and as a football supporters we've seen for so many years under John Delaney that the FAI has refused to engage with the media or or offer any transparency and this is a complaint that football fans and football clubs would have had for many a year that they they did no sense or no understanding of where the money is going or what's coming in even football clubs don't know how much electricity are paying to sponsor the League of Ireland and this is a very basic question and you know as stakeholders you'd expect that they'd be that information would be shared but and we had some great questions from Jonathan O'Brien who obviously has involvement with Cork City Sinn Féin TD asking is the UEFA prize money ring fenced or not or is that mixed in with the pot to allow for FAI spending because the way it works is UEFA pay the money to the FAI and the FAI transfer it on to the clubs that are in Europe and that do well like Dundalk have recently and my job was on the floor when Donald Conway refused to even engage in that saying it's commercially sensitive he couldn't even say you know yes or no is the money ring fenced or not and that's obviously alarming and we do have an ongoing Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement investigation now into the FAI over the non-declaration or non-reporting of that uh, 100,000 loan in 2017 and 
I suppose once the ODC are in there, they'll have a number of questions for the FAI and Sport Ireland um, are aware that that's an ongoing process. And I think that's why John Dunning didn't want to answer a lot of questions last week because you know he didn't want to say anything that could incriminate himself, I suppose, in, on that, in that ongoing investigation. And what's your understanding about the request from Dundalk FC for €300,000 in around the same time that John Delaney wrote this cheque for €100,000 uh, to tie the association over? Uh, do you think that's uh, been put in the public domain to cloud the issue? No, I don't. Um, I think that's, that goes to the heart of it, really. Um, like, there's a lot of conjecture about what this €100,000 is. I, I genuinely believe that there was a black hole in the FAI's finances and they needed money. I, I find it amazing that John Lenny wasn't aware of this until what he says was the last minute, effectively, that his finance department told him. So, I, I, like, no rock asked the question, was this Dundalk's money that had to be paid out? And, um, you know, the FAI refused to answer, but you know, join the dots there. I, I, I think what the FAI and what John Delaney have been concerned about all the time is that they didn't want uh, external uh, people looking in or, or scratching beneath the surface of the FAI's finances and looking at, you know, what a, what is their expenses policy? You know, what's happening with John Delaney's rent? Who's paying that? And there's other curious payments in the FAI that we, 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 we'll, we'll learn more about, I think, coming down in the coming weeks. So mm-hmm. I, I think the, the, the this thing about the club payments is... is 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 at the heart of the whole issue that this is club money and it shouldn't be used for other things and if the if the if the FAI are using it for day to day spending that that shouldn't happen and that's something that has to be gotten to the bottom of and you know the FAI have declined numerous uh, opportunities to clarify the, the what's happened on that front and I, I think that may be why uh, all of the TDs and senators who sit on uh, the Oireachtas committee have come to the conclusion uh, that the board should step down. Uh, it's because the questions have not been addressed. These questions are there. They're very important questions and they've been given the opportunity to address them, but they haven't uh, availed of that opportunity. What if the minister takes a similar position and can't express confidence in the board today? Because undoubtedly he'd be asked that. Uh, sure. how, how significant might that be? Yeah, well, it just it ratchets it up the, up the pressure on Donald Conway. Look, a guy who's, um, you know, you could, you could see he was a, a guy trying his best, but also that he was wedded to this uh, FAI diktat or tactics, you know, not to uh, engage on anything that wasn't explicitly about the uh, state funding. And I think just that's not good enough. You know, we've had Neve Brennan, you know, uh, corporate governance expert in UCD, saying that this wasn't on, um, this failure to be transparent with stakeholders. You know, if Irish football fans, Irish football clubs aren't getting answers. So, uh, you know, the the... the Fergus O'Dowd has called for regime change, um, and the FEI haven't offered that yet. You know, two two board members have gone, but you know, a lot of these people that you know, all this board unanimously voted for John Delaney to be moved sideways into this uh, executive vice president role only last month, and they're all still on the board. There's obviously a problem in that the FAI have to abide by their own internal rules, and and the board are largely elected by the the, the FAI council, which is about 60 members, and they're all elected through you know their own delegations and clubs and so on. So it, it, there is a lack of leadership. You can see that already. They won't answer questions um, about even the statement yesterday to say if the board accepted John Delaney's offer to step aside. So. There, there, there is a leadership vacuum in the FAI, and you know we've got Rio Walsh in there, who's very new into the, into the FAI in terms of only there four years, and has now been elevated, you know, kind of two positions above where she was only last month to, to interim chief executive, and you, you wonder who's driving the bus now. 
<laughs> or if it's being driven a, a, at all or, or what the situation will be tomorrow because as you say uh, there's the likelihood uh, of uh, the pressure being ratcheted up on the board if the board was to step down though I, I take it that wouldn't bring about an end to the questions because the questions are so pertinent at this stage Yeah, like the the tap doesn't get turned on until the questions are answered and uh, Sport Ireland and the, and the, the Department of Sport are satisfied that there's controls in place um, to ensure that, you know, a very basic thing like a, a director's loan is reported to the board and, and you know, if there's a, a shortfall in funds that has to be reported to Sport Ireland as it is required under the terms and conditions of that state grant. So, you know, until those uh, matters are, are resolved, yeah, the, the money, the tax does not get turned back on. So that, this is something I suppose that the grassroots people involved in the FAI have to really start putting pressure on the FAI board possibly to step down or for new people to come in and, and you know there's clearly a need for new leadership in there like as Niall Quinn said only a gilly would want to go in there under the current situation and but we have John Delaney in this kind of limbo situation where he's a spectre hanging over any any person in, in a leadership position in the FAI that's not a satisfactory position for the FAI to be in Okay well that committee should uh, meet around half twelve uh, today and we'll hear more throughout the day. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning though. Mark Ty is uh, the journalist uh, with uh, the Sunday Times that uh, broke uh, the story about uh, John Delaney's €100,000 bridging loan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Equal pay for equal work is a fundamental principle for most people, but there is a gender pay gap in uh, this country, in some cases as high as 31%, according to the SIPTU Trade Union. We'll talk about this with Marie Sherlock, who's Head of Equality and Policy with SIPTU. Good morning to you, Marie, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, There's legislation uh, afoot which may tackle this to some degree, and we'll talk about that in a, a moment, but how do you come up with this figure of 31%? So good morning, Michael, um, uh, to you and all your listeners. So I suppose it's important to understand that um, when we talk about the gender pay gap, that uh, in, in, in this country and in many other countries, that, uh, that uh, pay discrimination between women and women, men and women in the workplaces is, of course, outlawed, right, when they're doing um, the, the, the same work. But what we do... Uh, find or what there has been a long term trend in this country is that of course women and men do different work or work different hours and when we compare the average man working man versus the average working woman we know that on an hourly basis that the difference between what the woman gets paid and the the man gets paid is about almost 14% less Mm. Okay, and then when we look at what the difference in the weekly pay um, we we see that the difference is 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 in excess of thirty percent, and there's a number of key reasons for that. Um, women tend to work fewer hours, or certainly the average woman works fewer hours compared with the average working man. Um, we know that there's a much higher share of women in part-time work um, in this country, and I suppose. One of the, uh, you know, from from many years of research into the sector, we are into pay trends for full-time versus part-time workers. We know that there is a very real potential of those who come into part-time work being trapped in a low-pay 
situation with no real career progression. Mm. So it's a very different situation for those in full-time work relative to those in part-time work. And that obviously gives rise to some, but not all, of the factors behind the gender pay gap. But that early difference of 14% falls below the difference in other European countries, is it? Uh, which is, uh, I think, on average around 21%. Yeah, look, like it's in, uh, like it's in the... the, the, the Certainly different countries fare differently. Mm. There's no doubt about that. Um, but uh, but really and truly, I suppose, we're interested in trying to minimise that gap. As, well, as, uh, as, sure, as yeah. And I, I don't know. mean to make the argument that two wrongs make a, a right. A, 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 absolutely, yeah. So, mm-hmm. like, the thing is, I, I, I think certainly we see in countries where there's a higher employment rate of females mm. and where more females are in full-time work, that gap is lower. In countries where there's more women either not at work or in part-time work, then that gap is higher. But you know that that you know there's there's a whole series of cultural and economic factors. But certainly here in Ireland, um, we are very you know I, I I think it's a real source of concern that we do have that gap uh, now in 21st century Ireland, and and in particular when we look at the weekly gap, um, and that is a whole series mm. of and that's of when it goes up to over 30 percent because of working fewer hours. But what about the hourly per- rate of pay? If the gap is 14 percent, how is that justifiable? Well, as in what accounts for it, is it? Um, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. better put, yes. Yeah, well, yeah. well, well. I suppose, look, there, there is a number of factors, right? So we know when we look at, when we look at the, so, so there's a number of factors. So firstly, in terms of what we call occupational segregation, and to explain to your listeners, what that means is that um, if we think of particular sectors, let's say like education or health, there's more females employed in those sectors relative to, let's say, manufacturing or transport or other sectors. So, so uh, um, and in particular, when we look at the, the sectors where that dominate low pay, such as uh, retail or uh, hospitality um, or uh, care, the home care sector um, or cleaning, then there is a higher uh, share of females employed in the low paid sectors. So, so that's the first thing to say that uh, I suppose the jobs that females do relative to the jobs that males do on average, that the, ma- the jobs that males do tend to be higher paid or those sectors tend to be higher paid. And of course, we know that there is like lots of women working in manufacturing, lots of women in engineering. And, well, not as many as obviously we would like. But, you know, but, 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 but I suppose when, when, when you look at the share of females in, in any of those sectors. So that's the first thing. The second thing then is with regards to what we might call the motherhood penalty. Um, and I suppose typically, I, I think if you were to ask, stop anybody in the street and ask, them why there is a gender pay cap a lot of people would probably proffer that as, 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 a, as a reason um, and what we do find is that uh, when uh, the, 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 well I, I suppose what is interesting is in, 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 in the 20s right okay when men and women are aged in their 20s there is even a gender pay gap then, right? But that exacerbates with each passing decade. And in particular, when women get into their 30s and um, I suppose peak childbearing age, particularly here in this country anyway, in terms of when most women have their children, then we see that women tend to reduce their hours or leave the labour market altogether. And of course, that you know, with the more children they have, that you know, the greater the incidence of that. So, so we we do see a fall off, a fairly significant fall off in the labour force participation of women um, when they get into uh, their late thirties and into their forties. And of course, it's not just related to childcare um, responsibilities; it's also related to uh, care of elderly relatives as well. Um, 
so so that's a second factor and then a third factor then of course is in terms of um uh, uh, I, I suppose as I, as I talked about that that low wage part time trap so women reducing their hours um remaining within the workplace but not uh, succeeding in terms of that, uh, n- not progressing in terms of career progression. And the last factor, and I suppose this is probably what we understand least, but we certainly, um, uh, you know, from, from all the research that has been in- undertaken internationally, know that it is a very significant factor, is that uh, uh, women who, um, when they go to negotiate pay increases, when they do progress through their their their, their workplaces um, fare less well compared with men so so there is you know there is an issue with regards to trade trade or pay transparency mm. there of course from a from a union perspective we also see that when there is clear pay structures there's less wage dispersion within firms and typically uh, and those dis- have, I'm sorry those structures can be distorted somewhat through bonuses or, or benefits and, and that's precisely it so so what so so I suppose just with regards to the legislation uh, that that yes. is, is being proposed at the moment of the bill. Um, and this has been something that, you know, the union movement and others have been, and Women's Council and others have been have been talking about for a period of time. And we're, we're very glad now to see that there's a bill because it was very real concern at the start of the year that we weren't going to see a bill this year. This was originally started by Senator Van Abachik and then there was a, um, I, I suppose, while well, there was government approval or uh, agreement, then that, that stalled and then the government put forward their own bill. So there was a lot of internal political manoeuvring and, and thankfully now we do have a bill, but of course it has to go through the Iraq and what that bill effectively does is that it sets out a list of criteria um, for for companies um, to uh, um, to to compare the pay rates of their male and female workers um, uh, within their own organisations. It starts off at. Uh, 250 workers and over a period of time it will capture all companies employing over 50 workers um, or more. Um, So look I suppose it's important to say that this is a very welcome piece of legislation but we believe there's still a bit of road to travel to try and get it right um, because ultimately if we're serious about um, shining that light you know bringing about greater pay transparency um, within companies, and I'm sure many of your listeners would have seen some of the headlines of some of the very uh, eye-watering uh, pay arrangements that chief executives have um, uh, within certain uh, companies located here in Ireland. And when you compare that to the very lowest paid workers in those companies, like there's a huge gap, you know. So mm. the thing is, um, and I there probably always will be. Oh, well, 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 I suppose any organisation that's going to have a hierarchy will always have a pay structure. Um, I think that is widely accepted. But I suppose it's the extent of that gap, like is in, you know, um, I don't have the figures here in front of me, but certainly there is there is a lot of research that's been undertaken by the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, which demonstrates that, you know, what a CEO will earn in one day relative to what a person at the lowest paid worker will earn in a, in a year. You know, so that is very stark. Um, and, and I suppose this legislation in some ways tries to shine some bit of leg- uh, a greater light on the pay structures within companies. But we have a number of concerns, and I suppose it's important just to articulate what those concerns are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, it's not just about talking about the difference between what males and females are paid in a particular organisation. It's looking at the why. Because... Um, unless we begin to understand the reasons behind that, then we're not going to be able to reduce that that pay gap over time. And certainly what I um, think is missing from the current bill, and we, sincerely, we have said this to government through um, 
submissions and our hearing, the Oireachtas hearing, is that we need to see uh, workers um, who are uh, on, working on a full-time basis compared with workers on a part-time basis. So their hourly rate compared within organisations because then we'll have a sense of whether there is a low pay or there is a, a wage trap for those on on, on, a, on part-time hours. Within so so that you're comparing like with like, in other words, uh, if somebody is on low pay working part-time, whether they're male or female, they should be on the same rate of pay rather than uh, the situation which may very well be that it's predominantly women who are in those positions and men who may be in uh, the middle management, senior management positions yeah, well, that command well, a well, 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 I suppose the point is, if I decide I wanted to go down to a four-day week, mm. um, that my hourly rate of pay um, should not be different to the person who's working a five-day week. And I think it's also important for your listeners to understand that in terms of the definition of part-time work, it's defined as less than full-time work. So it's not half hours, mm. it's just less than, par- than, than full hours. So if I'm on a four-day week, then I'm... Can, I, I, I'm, I'm deemed to be a part-time worker. So I think it's very important to, to compare those full-time relative to part-time workers as opposed to just part-time males versus part-time females. You know, I think mm-hmm. that doesn't, you know, that, that, that there is an issue there. I think the second issue is with regards to comparing temporary staff relative to permanent staff. So again, there is provision in the bill here to com- to compare uh, temporary female versus temporary male staff. Mm. But again, we need to see the hourly rate of pay between temporary versus permanent staff. And to understand that where some firms have very large cohorts of temporary workers, that, you know, um, is, is that a reason for why there is a big pay gap within those companies? Mm. And I think the last, um, well, sorry, there's many concerns, I'm but sure. if, I'm, if I'm to summarise yeah. them, yeah. I suppose mm-hmm. the third big... Mm. It, big concern for us is in terms of who this um, this this, uh, this measuring bill cover ca- captures because mm-hmm. they're very big companies. Yeah, so mm-hmm. exactly. So there's about two hundred fifty thousand um, companies in this country, and the vast majority employ ten or, or, or less employees. At the moment, the government proposal um, is to capture, over a period of time, they're going to face this in, 50 employees. And uh, if, if that is the case, then that will only That's capture 50 one. or more, but to begin with, it's 250 yeah, or absolutely. more. Absolutely, yeah. indeed, indeed. So, like I said, we're talking only three or 4,000, sorry, we're talking very small number of firms if it's 250. But by the time they get to 50 employees, that will just capture 1.4% of all firms. Um, now it's 57% of all employees, but it's a very tiny number of firms. Um, we would argue uh, that it should, the threshold should be moved to 20 employees. And certainly when we look at the experience in Sweden, mm. um, uh, you know, in some of the Baltic countries, they all have a threshold of less than 20. But what um, about the costs but, involved in providing that information? Uh, yeah. You talk about bringing in outside auditors uh, in some cases where people are looking after their own accounts. Yeah. So, and look, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, a very fair question. But you know, if, if we think about um, how most firms, uh, you know, I suppose put together their books um, at the end of a year, um, then certainly if you're a red, you know, if, if you're a limited company, then you need to have audited accounts. So, you know, it wouldn't be um, a very onerous task to be able to. 
um, identify the, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. meet the set of criteria if you are a registered, com- a limited company that has to furnish your accounts to the company registrations office on an annual rep- on, on an annual basis. Okay. Um, certainly for companies that are uh, that that are not. Uh, limited companies, which you know, it's, it's quite a small number in this country. Then, um, then, then they still need to put together a set of management accounts and annual accounts every year. And uh, and certainly, the bill as it currently stands is not um, very onerous in that regard. So, I I think when we're looking at firms of twenty employees or more, most of them um, will either have an in-house function, or if they don't, uh, accounting function, uh, a finance department function or they outsource it to uh, you know an accountancy firm who will conduct payroll and accountancy services for okay. them so I, I I think there could be a lot of scaremongering here that this is going to be an addition, a massive additional cost and 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 you know really and truly if anybody understands the accounting practices of most firms then you know it it, it won't be um, okay. or it shouldn't be certainly but all if right. you were to move it to 20 employees you'd be capturing 70 percent of all employees in the country which again you know, is, mm-hmm. is, is not is it, 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 it's a majority of employees, but certainly not all employees. And we think that would be that would be a very progressive move on the government okay, part. Okay, Marie, I have to leave it there. Good to talk to you, though, and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Marie Sherlock is uh, the head of uh, Equality and policy with the Sip2 Trade Union. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents uh, which Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Fiona Kerr of Navin Station joins us for this week's report and we begin in Dundalk with an aggravated burglary. That's right. Good morning, Michael. On Sunday last, the 14th of April, into the early hours of Monday morning, that's approximately 12.30 to 1am, at the Dundalk IT campus, an apartment was broken into through patio doors. One man entered the apartment and threatened the occupant with an item similar to a fire poker. And he took a phone, a bag and clothes. The bag was a blue Aston Villa bag, so quite a distinctive item. And the only description we have of the offender here is that he was six foot of slim build and was wearing a dark coloured jacket. So we're appealing to our listeners this morning and in particular any listeners who attend DKIT or were there on Sunday night into Monday morning from approximately 12.30 to 1am. If they can recall seeing anything unusual or someone who fits the description we have given or perhaps have been offered a phone or other items for sale to please contact the Guardian at Dundalk who are keen to progress this investigation. Right, uh, that's uh, one of a, a number of burglaries uh, we've uh, to report on uh, this week. Uh, one of a, a number of burglaries to report, uh, report on in Dundalk. Another two now. That's right. The first burglary happened in the Ardesmond area of Dundalk and it occurred on Friday the 12th of April between 2.30 and 3.15pm. The homeowner left the house for a short time, only 40 to 45 minutes, and when they returned the house had been ransacked and entry gained through a bedroom window. There was significant damage done and a significant amount of cash and items taken, in particular jewellery. And the second burglary happened in the Ardnacarrig estate in Lisnadara. And again, here a number of items were taken, including a laptop and cash. And this occurred on the 9th of April between 8am and 5.30pm. An entry was gained in this case through the patio door, which was smashed. So both of these burglaries occurred in the daylight hours and were appealing to the public for their help with them. So just to quickly recap, Friday the 12th of April at 2.30 to 3.15pm in the Ardesmond area of Dundalk and Ardna Carrig in Lisnadara on the 9th of April from 8am to 5.30pm. Any help or information, the Guardian Dundalk would be very grateful. We'll stay in Dundalk for the next crime to report on. This was a, a robbery. 
Yes, a robbery from a person, Michael, on Sunday the 14th of April at 10.50pm approximately at Greenfield Court, Tom Bellew Avenue in Dock. A female was returning to her student accommodation when she was approached by a man at the entrance to the apartments. Now he demanded that she hand over her property and as he did this he hit her in the face with an object. So as you can imagine this was a terrifying experience for the female involved. He got a small amount of cash, then left on foot in the direction of Dundalk IT campus. And the only description we have to go on is that he was wearing a blue jacket and a dark coloured tracksuit. Uh, Dundalk Gardaí would really appreciate any help or information which would assist them. Or if people prefer, they can also use the Garda Confidential line on 1-800-666-111. To Slay next and uh, some items stolen from a number of cars. That's right. On Thursday the 11th of April, approximately 5pm, two cars were broken into at the Hill of Slane. The rear windows were smashed in both cars and a significant amount of items were also taken. And this is an issue that arises time and time again and I can't reiterate enough how important it is to never leave valuables, bags, phones or any items in your car which are visible to passers-by. Either bring them with you or put them in the boot of the car or leave them at home if you're parking your car up to go for a walk. So if anybody listening today can help the Gardaí in slain with these crimes, uh, it would be much appreciated. Again, it was on Thursday the 11th of April at approximately 5pm at the Hill of Slane. OK, we go to Kells uh, and uh, some tools, is it, that were taken from a garden shed? That's right. Uh, between Wednesday and Thursday, that's the 10th of April and the 11th of April, during the hours of 9pm to 6.30am at Courtown in Kells, County Meath, a garden shed was broken into and a number of valuable tools were taken, namely a steel hedge trimmer, a steel leaf blower, a chainsaw and a ride-on lawnmower. So again, it's important to emphasise that while we remember to secure our homes with alarms and sensor lights, it's also important not to forget about the garden shed, especially if it contains valuable tools and machinery. And if any listeners can recall seeing any person or vehicle in the vicinity of Balrath, Boyne, Courtown and County Meath between 9pm on the 10th and 6.30am on the 11th to please contact Kells Guard Station. Or indeed, if you are offered some of these uh, tools uh, for purchase uh, because it's coming into that season and as the weather gets warmer people will be looking for these tools and I suppose there's more risk of them being stolen from you as well. Uh, We're going to conclude uh, this week with an appeal. You're looking for volunteers. That's right. The Meath branch of the Federation of Victim Assistance are seeking volunteers from the people of County Meath to be part of a newly relaunched service that offers assistance to victims of crime or those that have experienced um, a traumatic incident. So training will be given to volunteers by the victim assistance and on completion they'll form part of a team that calls to victims of crime of all age groups in Meath um, offering both practical and emotional support to the victims themselves and the victims family members. So this group, as I said, it's called the Federation for Victim Assistance, is a voluntary organisation which was founded in 2005 and is currently being relaunched in Meath. So it requires the community's assistance to identify volunteers that have spare time to provide this much-needed service. And if anybody listening this morning is interested or would like more information, they can email uh, support at victimassistance.ie or call one 800 277 Four double seven. Okay, and they work in conjunction with Angarda Shiakana.
That's right. Okay. All right. We'll uh, leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, uh, Garda Fiona Kerr of Navangarda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. But that's where we leave you for today because our time has run out on us once again. As always, let me remind you there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Ross Leahy and Maggie McGuire for researching. Chris Murray was in the control tower. And I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. Brought to you with Cark McCross Credit Union, where dreaming of warmer climates becomes a reality with a Cark McCross Credit Union holiday loan. O'Neill Street, Cark McCross or CarkMcCrossCU.ie.